Welcome to This Week in Blurns Ball, where Astro isn't just the name of the Jetsons dog, it's the subject of every single podcast we do. I'm your co-host, Benjamin Bloom. With me, as always, is Jacob Morris. And we were talking before the beginning of this episode that Oh my God! We're gonna—it's gonna—it's gonna be asterisk Astros centric once again, isn't it? Yeah, I mean it has to be, and they—they they just keep doing it, don't they? I mean the good thing is they keep giving us content, but the bad thing is—is is that I want to stop talking about the freaking Astros, and they keep making us talk about the freaking Astros. Uh, so where do we begin? Do we begin with the fact that their fans are suing them, or do we begin with the fact that they went into spring training and completely botched the PR execution? Uh, take your pick. I feel like we start with how the team responded to it first, because that's always, you know, the most interesting thing. I mean, we've seen past in, you know, baseball cheating stories, whether it's PEDs or gambling where, you know, the reaction of the parties involved really sets the tone for the next steps. I mean, during the, uh, during the, like, the congressional hearings where, you know, Rafael Palmero said, I have never done steroids, period. Just kidding. He did every single steroid. Yeah. And then you have the Andy Pettit apology, which if you want to dissect that more, like Malcolm Gladwell did a great revisionist history podcast about you know, Andy Pettit versus Barry Bonds in terms of the the degrees of cheating. Even A-Rod, when he, like, admitted to it, like, he was a pretty, the first time he admitted to it, it was a pretty sincere apology by A-Rod standards. And then he ends up getting banned for, you know, a season, you know, like, five, six years later. But he's an interesting character in his own right. But, again, from a pure PR standpoint, the Astros have, been plaxicoing themselves for an entire week and it's a mess yeah absolutely from a pr perspective they did literally everything wrong i mean the first rule in the book uh if you're trying to do damage control is own what you did and they've come out and they said well we don't think we did anything that was that so so bad and uh we didn't think what we did was morally wrong it's like guys come on all you're doing is extending what's gonna what you're gonna be in the news for Literally, that's the first rule in every book about crisis management PR. Say you're sorry. A sincere apology goes such a long way. And they're not doing it. I mean, I feel like this this is going to be in the textbooks for the wrong reasons. It's going to be about the Astros did this, and let's learn all of the lessons we can from how not to do things from the Astros. Uh, what they should have done is come out and said, we're sorry. What we did was wrong. We've cooperated to the full extent of the MLB's investigation. And, again, we're sorry. It's it's the best defense. I mean, you're still going to get slammed for it, but it cuts down the media cycle that you get caught in. And no apology should have the word but in it. I'm sorry we did this, but let's be honest. Did it really impact the game? Regardless of whether it did or not, in this case, it very much did. Don't put that idea out there for the other 29 Major League Baseball teams who now every player, and it's their right to do so, is weighing in on what's been going on. And there have been, you know, like players saying anything from, you know, like I've lost all respect for them to, you know, Aaron Judge deleting his tweet congratulating Altuve on 
you know, his postseason success to, you know, Nick Markakis, first time I've heard his name in a, in a long time, although he was a surprise all-star a few years back to his credit, saying they should all take a beating. Like, there's the team, the Astros, from, like, from the top down, keeping it, keeping the story in the news cycle by half-apologizing and trying to explain their way out of something that they already admitted to is only going to rile up people's anger. Yeah, it, it absolutely is riling up the anger. And uh, what bothered me the most is what their owner came out and said, where he says, I mean, first thing is, is it didn't impact the game, and then less than a minute later denies saying it didn't impact the game. I mean, <laughs> come on, man. You you can't be doing that. You can't turn over, that, that That's Donald Trump-esque. I didn't say what I said when you heard me say what I said. But also, they're pretending like these baseball players, adult millionaire professional veteran baseball players, uh, are the victims here. They participated in this, but it's, oh, well, they didn't receive proper guidance from their leaders. They, they're culpable. That's ridiculous. They're sentient beings. Of course they're culpable. They're, they're 100% culpable. I, I mean... I'm not the Astros PR guy, but if I were, it's a very simple thing for the statement for them to do. They go down there as a team, they rend their garments, and they say, we are sorry, we were wrong. Uh, and that's the extent of it. You, you, and then some you answer it's honestly impossible. Yeah. yeah. And here's the thing. They have no reason to lie. They have no reason to obfuscate the truth because they all the players have immunity. Manfred granted them that in exchange for cooperation. He's like the bad cop at the beginning of a CBS procedural who just gives away immunity willy-nilly. And, I mean, should they, should they have even gotten that? I, it's, that's, gonna, that's something that's still lingering as to the, you know, the validity of essentially clearing them of any potential punishment. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm of the opinion the MLB botched this investigation from day one. Uh, you can't have an organization investigate itself. It should have been an external source investigating them they should have had somebody come in like they had with mitchell do the mitchell and when he did the mitchell report on steroids in baseball have mitchell come back in i mean he investigates this kind of stuff uh, as a third party guy all the time and investigate everything top to bottom full house cleaning because when mlb's investigating themselves there's always that question of well did they really find everything did they really do what was best for baseball or they do what was best for making money. Uh, there's there's those conspiratorial questions where if there's a third party guy, you know everything is clean, everything is above board. And that's another issue of if the MLB conducts an investigation and you see that they were relatively lenient on the players, there's talk going around that if they were to have punished the players, it would have been bogged down in a dispute with the Players Association, and it would have ended up hurting both sides even more. Uh, I mean, 
I see it, but from what the other 29 teams worth of players have said, I don't think the union really has a leg to stand on in terms of protecting these guys. If you break the rules to that extent, the union can give the the satisfactory defense of, well, we have to stand up for you guys because you're in the union, but there's not a lot where they can really defend you to that extent. Uh, it, it really seems to me like it wouldn't have been a union fight. Technically, there could, like, the union, since it is a labor dispute, could have set out that clear, explicit rules were not made. Like, it, that would have just protracted the case further, but that is a legally possible avenue they could have taken. I mean, like, union politics aside, here's really what I'm concerned about. How big of a target is on every single Astros batter heading into this season. Oh. You're going to have guys on the mound aggrieved with a lethal weapon in their hands. Like, what's to stop this from, go, from turning into pandemonium? Yeah, I mean, the only thing that's going to stop it from that is that Manfred came out and said, anybody who does executes revenge on this is going to be severely punished. But then that even means the guys who take in the revenge into their own hands are going to be punished more severely than the Astros players, and that hardly seems right. Um, you, it, it's worse to throw a baseball at a guy than to systemically execute the stealing of signs for the purpose of winning baseball games? I don't know. Like, that, that really doesn't seem right to me either. And it just it's a black cloud over a sport that is really trying to make sure that it stays relevant with the younger demographic, even as it's still making money hand over fist as a whole. Yeah, uh, so also what broke today is that a season ticket holder from the Astros uh, is filing suit against the team uh, in the state of Texas under, uh, he alleges that the team violated the state's deceptive trade and practice and consumer protection acts. Uh, and alleges in his lawsuit that uh, essentially the team deceptively overcharged the uh, fans for season tickets because they were cheating and stealing signs. This is a pretty interesting lawsuit in the sense that I think he's got a leg to stand on here, unlike most lawsuits fans bring against teams. You know what? I would not be surprised if he ends up with some kind of settlement or compensation. Like, I mean, we've all been, we, we've all been to baseball games. We've all purchased tickets, concessions, m merchandise, everything. It's not cheap. And it costs a whole lot more to see a good team as opposed to a substandard team. And Houston, Houston's a massive market. It's one of the, it's one of the biggest cities in the United States in terms of like the GHA. I don't know the exact term for it, like greater Houston area, as it were. But the fact that they went from more than 100 losses in a season to perennial pennant contenders and, you know what, still World Series champions. If, if I'm a fan and I find out that I've essentially been bilked, I... I would want my money back. Yeah, absolutely I'd want my money back as a fan. Um, it's, it seems like an interesting story. Now, 
I mean, I'd like to see some more revenge taken by teams in interesting fashions. Uh, forget throwing at them. I want to see the Dodgers go full UCF. Uh, say, <laughs> you know what? We're the 2017 champions. Raise a banner. Have a celebration oh, for it. Have a parade. <laughs> It doesn't matter that they aren't the actual champions. Say we consider ourselves the champions. Go nuts with it. I still think that, you know, in that vein, there's a way to, I mean, like, to just, like, for the in-house, like, uh, for the in-house production crew to just outright shame the Astros whenever... You know, in between innings before the Astros come to the plate, you know, just have a trash can sound banging or even have Oscar the Grouch's I Love Trash. Like, just have the mascots, you know, like with walkie talkies, like have have I don't know, have cowbell giveaway nights like just really like I mean, that way it takes the sting from a fan perspective. Like if a fan does anything stupid, that just makes everything worse. And that's like absolutely uncalled for. One of my, at this point, sorry, sorry. But one of my favorite things yeah. that uh, the Oakland Athletics do is they play deeply embarrassing music uh, for the opposing team when they have their walk up uh, for at bats in Oakland. So the counter to your psych up music. So they'll play Disney songs. Uh, when Let It Go was really popular, that was a standby. I deeply want to see that what they do to Houston. You know, uh, now batting number twenty-seven, Jose Altuve, and then on comes you know clown music or I love trash or something like that. <laughs> I mean, their their guys are going to go nuts with that. Yeah, they're going to moneyball the hell out of in-game productions. And you know what? I, I do have a bone to pick with that point. I would love to have a Disney song as my walk-up. I, I don't know about you. like Disney's had some pretty great jams over the years. And if Gerardo Parra can make it big, you know, going up to Baby Shark, I'm pretty sure I could, you know, like get at least a stand-up double with Moana playing. Oh, yeah. There are some Disney jams. Okay, so that... Let's let's go off on a little tangent here. What would your walk-up song be if you were in the majors? Oh, that's a tough one because there's a lot of different angles I might want to take with it. I mean, like the classic, like would just be you know trampled underfoot by Led Zeppelin, just like a real banger, just you know just like get, getting you fired up walking to the mound. But I also feel like I need to do something to throw back to my roots. So, you know, Havenu Shalom Aleichem would be a great one. Because <laughs> it's Jewish, but it's not, you know, the same Havanagila that they always play, like, at, at sporting events. I, I, feel I, like, think... I feel like if you're Jewish, there is some sort of rule that they give you at your bar mitzvah. If you reach the pinnacle of sport, you have to use Havanagila. <laughs> Look at how many Jewish gymnasts do their floor exercise to Havanagila. Look at how many Jewish figure skaters skate to Havanagila. There, there's some sort of rule in there that, that has to be. Uh, but continuing with that, um, <laughs> I, do, I do really like that idea. I think I would toss back to my Canadian roots. I'd go with something by the hip. Uh, my standby has Ooh, been... Nice. Uh, at the hundredth meridian, when you hit the chorus there, that is a nice psych up. That is good. 
Same with Fish 50 Mission Cap, which I know has a bit more tie-in to, uh, to hockey with the Bill Barilko cut and paste, as Gord Downey liked to put it. That is a good one. That is a real good one. But again, it does feel too hockey for me. Uh, that's a fun and, one. I mean, going off on an even further tangent, like, I mean, one of my favorite, like, player walk-ups was when Adrian Gonzalez had El Mariachi Loco playing and it was just like because like he's like like he's a dual national like he grew up on either side of the San Diego Tijuana border and like he's a hero in both Southern California and Northern Mexico and like it was just it was just a catchy song and like I have no claims to Mexican heritage whatsoever my great-grandparents were in Cuba on their way to Ellis Island back in the 20s. So I don't feel like I would be the right person to have, you know, like like such a great mariachi song like that. But it's such a good song. Some More people have to have fun with walk-up songs. <laughs> yeah, there's too many guys just go with like, oh, here's a banger, here's a rap song that I like. Have some fun with it. I do like that. Uh, but let's get back to the baseball news, if you will. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so, you want to talk about Aubrey Huff, or do you want to have the fun story come first? Well, that's like asking if I want, you know, this cash prize or what's in the mystery box. Ooh, mystery box! Mystery box! Uh, <laughs> All right, let's hear it. Okay, uh, so Blue Jays catcher Reese McGuire was caught with his pants down in Florida, if uh, one will pardon oh, a pun. Uh, <laughs> oh, playing God. with his fungo, if you will. Uh, he was formally charged with uh, exposure of his sexual organs, but uh, what has been disclosed is that he was caught masturbating in the parking lot of a Dollar Tree in Dunedin. Uh, and the team... What? Yeah, also a Dollar Tree. Like, <laughs> yeah, there's there's a lot going on with this. Too much, like I don't want to know, but has become public knowledge. It, it's the first time people have talked about Reese McGuire. <laughs> I mean, he had a pretty solid back half of the 2019 season. Uh, he's one of those guys that, if you're following the Jays, you think, okay. He could be a decent tandem partner with Danny Jansen. Put the two of them together, and they make Seems one like good catcher. He couldn't catcher. find a tandem partner that night. <laughs> hey yo! Um, and that's the thing; it, it, it opens up to so many different things. It's like, oh, we made a great one-handed grab. Oh boy! Swinging a drive. <laughs> he really roped that one in. <laughs> Man, this. The thing I imagine is Buck is Martinez saying, long drive, high and deep. Uh, <laughs> and then Pat Tabler would, you know, he's got those big, strong hands. <laughs> Abby Cat, not this year, buddy. <laughs> oh, my gosh, yes. Uh, are just... making light of a, of a, like, actual, like, arrestable charge, but at the same time, as long as no one was hurt or no one was like, it's like from what we're hearing, it was just him solo, just, you know, like uh, doing a, playing a bit of pepper. Exactly. Uh, 
Oh, that was a bad that was a bad pun there, Ben. Uh but <laughs> Yeah, it was it was just him. Nobody was hurt. Uh he even admitted as the cops came, yeah, this is a bad look. Uh and it is something that is a small charge. It's a nominal fine and yeah, it's a little gross, but it's a natural part of the human experience. So, uh, it's a perfectly natural, normal thing. Yeah, it's just a weird place to do it. Um, yeah. It's something that the team will address once he goes through the court proceedings. I'm sure he will plead no contest. I mean, he was caught in the act. Um, and then, hopefully, it will just go away. Although, I think that uh, there will be some inappropriate taunts at visiting stadiums this coming season for him. I'm sure people will be too busy thinking about the Astros, to be honest. <laughs> Well, we got to have something to take our mind off the Astros. Why does it have to be this, though? <laughs> well, it could have been Aubrey Huff first, but that's just depressing. And here's the thing about that story. I saw the headline, and I'm like, okay, what exactly is going on here? And you know what? It's just, yeah, I mean, like, like let's dive right into it. So why exactly is he not going to be part of the upcoming World Series reunion? Uh, I mean, the short answer is he's crazy. The long answer is he's freaking crazy. Uh, he's gone completely off the deep end, right-wing conspiracy, anti-woman nut job on Twitter, uh, and does not exactly represent the Giants organization and what they want to put forward and uh, their public face anymore. Oh, I'd certainly say so. And, you know, there have been instances where, you know, like other members of championship teams have, you know, like made their political beliefs like well known. I, I go back to, you know, like Bruins goalie Tim Thomas refusing to go to the White House because of his, I guess he was calling himself a libertarian. Either way, he just didn't like Obama. He, you know, made a thing of it. The NHL, like, you know, was doing its best to, you know, like, sweep that under the rug. Something that the NHL is quite good at. Then you now have, you know, like, professional athletes who are reticent to go to the White House with its current occupants for understandable but their own political reasons. This, this is something different, though. This is, you know, this is closer in line to when... You know, Kurt Schilling, you know, great, great, great baseball player. Kind of a, kind of a, kind of a nut off of it. Yeah, I really liked Kurt Schilling as a baseball player, but as a human being, he, he's a rough character to like. Um, just, and he's done like a ton of stuff for ALS research, but he's also should not have a Twitter account. Yeah, I mean, Twitter... Twitter lets us see the worst in people sometimes. Uh, you know how they say don't read the comments on the internet? Twitter is just... Most of them comments. are by Aubrey Huff. <laughs> Pretty much, but what I was saying is Twitter is just the comment section. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, but that brings and us... yeah, just... That brings us to the end of the news of the week uh, on a bit of a downer note. But since this episode... And, then, and just one more thing, just 
sorry, just one more thing to bring up. I mean, like, and, and just like a bit of like genuine unfortunate news, not just some jerk being a jerk on Twitter. Um, oh, yes. Like Blue Jays great Tony Fernandez died after, you know, reportedly a stroke. He, I, I know he was dealing with kidney disease. He was on a transplant list. It's he, for my money, was the single most important Blue Jay in the team's history for both on and off field reasons. I mean, he was like a key, like he, he was, he was their lead off guy. He was their shortstop in the eighties, a key member of that 85 team that, you know, went to, went the distance against Kansas city. He ended up becoming a key cog in the trade that brings in Joe Carter and Roberto Alomar, which I know must've, you know, like it, it, it really hurt him when he was traded because uh, he loved the organization so much. Ended up, you know, like having a stellar year, you know, once he had been traded and ends up coming back to the Jays in 93 after the team wins in 92, becomes, you know, steps right back in. He then, he goes, ends up going to another, he go, ends up going to the World Series with the Cleveland, with Cleveland later on, you know, playing a key role on that team. He, he had a stint with the Yankees. He had one more go around with the Blue Jays at the end. And really just so many people, the, the outpour of emotions has been incredible. And, you know, you just, you just feel for his family, like 57 is way too damn young. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. 57 is yeah. too young. And that is, it's sad to, to lose one of the all time greats. Uh, I mean, for the Jays, at least. Uh, I'd like to see the Jays retire number one for him. I know that the team policy has been that they only retire numbers of players who are inducted into the Hall of Fame. Uh, I'd like to see them change that policy, to be honest, uh, seeing as to how... He is technically a Canadian Baseball Hall of Famer. Uh, yes, technically true. Like, technically correct. Like, the best he, kind of correct. Um, yes. Yeah, I know. I would like to see him uh, brought back... Uh, well, not brought back, because zombies is scary. I'd like to see them rescind that rule uh, so that he would be uh, have his number retired. No further Blue Jay wears number one. Um, it'd just be a nice gesture for how much he gave to that team and how much he really loved that team. Absolutely, and every interaction, you know, I've seen from fans and even my own personal interactions with him, you know, just a very humble, very thoughtful person very very soft-spoken but he he had fire he there was a lot of passion that you know that his you know very serene demeanor often belied he was you know very he cared deeply about you know like charitable work about his religion about about baseball more than anything and you know it's really an example of just someone who you know Fans loved to love. Players loved him. It was, you know, he was an absolutely just. It's just an it's an unfortunate it's an unfortunate situation when anyone dies. But, you know, he was a really like really like good character person. He was. He absolutely was. Uh, so, that's a bit of a downer to kind of go out on. But it is. It's hard. <laughs> we, this we is have an absolute short episode. So we're gonna have a little fun to end. Uh, we are coming up on the 28th anniversary of the all-time classic Simpsons episode, Homer at the Bat. 
We're talking softball. <laughs> Maine to San Diego. You know Diego. what? We could all use a pick-me-up after, you know, like another rough week of baseball news. And I feel like the only constant in both of our lives has been animated cartoons. So I feel like baseball is about fun. It's about remembering the good times. And yeah, I mean, <laughs> the first time I saw that episode, I couldn't. I, I'm like, wait, they have all these guest stars? How how can you do that? The, what about everyone else? The fact that they were able to even put that together is astounding. The story behind it, there is a Grantland article that they published, uh, I want to say for the 25th anniversary of that episode coming out, that details how everything came together and made that episode possible, and it is an absolute feat the behind the scenes of it. Uh, but for those who are not familiar with this episode, uh, we're going to pause for five seconds and uh, you're going to pause this episode. You're going to find it. It's called Homer at the Bat. I believe it was season two. And watch it. It's on Disney+. Plus. So uh, we're just going to take five seconds here. Okay, welcome back. For, now that you've watched Homer wow, at the Bat. Wow, that was a great episode. I rewatched it myself and I'm totally not just making that up. That it is absolutely a terrific episode. Uh, so now you've seen it, I don't need to recap the plot, but in case somebody, you know, didn't follow our advice and rewatch the episode, basically this... If I may? Yes, you may. Well, Mr. Burns had done it. The power plants had won it. <laughs> uh, with Roger Clemens talking all the while. Yes. <laughs> uh, yes, so the Springfield nuclear power plant... Uh, makes the regional softball finals against the Shelbyville nuclear power plant. And in order to win his million-dollar bet with uh, the owner of the Shelbyville nuclear power plant, Mr. Burns brings in Major League Baseball ringers to play for the Springfield nuclear plant. And they are all dispatched in hilarious fashions, except for the ringer replacing Homer, Daryl Strawberry. Uh, Daryl. 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 Uh, Sorry. No, you had to do it. You had to do it. Uh, who is pinch hit out after hitting nine home runs with the game tied and the bases loaded in the bottom of the ninth because he's a righty and Homer's a lefty and the pitcher is right-handed. Mr. Burns, an early advocate for sabermetrics. Uh, Homer it's called playing the percentages. Homer then skip out nine home runs. <laughs> Uh, Homer gets hit in the head by a pitch, being distracted by Mr. Burns' crazy signs, and they win the game. Uh, so the roster that they assembled was quite impressive. Roger Clemens, Mike Sosha, Jose Canseco, Steve Sachs, Wade Boggs, Ozzie Smith, Daryl Strawberry, uh, Don Mattingly, and Ken Griffey Jr. Just really, I mean, for that era, I think that episode came out in 1991. 92. Like you 92, so literally the year we were born, you couldn't ask for, you know, better ball players. You know, that's like an, that's an all-era team right there. It's, I mean, the fact that, you know, like most people now may not know Steve Sachs for anything but that episode. And a lot of people now were like, Mike Sosha, didn't he used to manage the Angels? He was a excellent. He was a solid player in his own right, and he was a great power plant employee. So dedicated, so dedicated, even with that nuclear poisoning. So, shall we recap how everybody uh, was comically 
uh, gotten out of the lineup? I, I think we have to. I mean, you know, my personal favorite was Steve Sachs being blamed for every unsolved murder in the history of New York. Some uh, fine detective work there, Chief Wiggum. <laughs> uh, personal favorite, Wade Boggs got in an argument with Barney <laughs> over who was the uh, greatest prime minister in the history of Britain. Hit the elder. Lord Palmerson. Hit the elder. <laughs> Lord Palmerson. And then Barney punches him out. Uh, oh. <laughs> Jose Canseco was removing all of the furniture from a house that was on fire. Roger Clements was hypnotized into thinking he was a chicken by the team's hypnotist. Uh, Ken Griffey Jr. drank too much nerve brain and nerve tonic and developed giantism. Don Mattingly quit the team because Mr. Burns uh, was too uh, was too obsessed with his sideburns, and as he left, said, "Still a better owner than Steinbrenner." Fun fact. He's not wrong there. <laughs> yes, true. But fun fact: that episode aired over a year before Mattingly had the confrontation with Steinbrenner over his sideburns. Once again, The Simpsons predict the future. Yes, it was it was a parody of the Yankees' facial hair policies at the time, uh, but it predicted the future. Uh, Ozzie Smith, Smith fell into the Springfield mystery spot uh, and never returned. And uh, who else have we missed? Sosha had radiation poisoning. Sosha had radiation poisoning. Sacks, Boggs, Smith. Oh, it's Strawberry Plate. That's everybody. They had no DH. Well, yeah, because, you know, we're playing softball here. <laughs> yes. And, you know, so many great moments from the episode, just, you know, like even on the periphery, like the fact that the Shelbyville power plant donor was essentially Aristotle Onassis. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I, that almost. Just like, so okay, much. why not? Yeah. <laughs> the whole episode. Uh, and the song at the end is based on a classic baseball song, uh, actually called Talking Baseball, sung by the same singer that sings the original song. Which is incredible in its own right. And, you know, the problem with some of the old-timey baseball songs, like, like after the, like the first, the, the, the third stanza of Take Me Out to the Ball Game has a lot to do with Jesus Christ. Which is not exactly the message we're going for. Like seriously, look it up, people. It's, oh. It goes from you know at the old ball game. You know, here is our Lord and Savior. He will pitch in the ninth. Yeah, it gets weird, y'all. It well, gets I weird. Mean, I mean, Jesus is a good closer. Yeah, but he has too many friends. You know, like they can't all fit on the field. <laughs> Plus, his dad will rate the game. Uh, I guess. Uh, so, with with the 28th anniversary now coming up, that kind of led us to thinking, if this episode happened again, if there was a Homer at the Bat 2, this time it's war, uh, what would the Springfield <laughs> Nuclear Power Plant team look like in 2020? And, of course, how would they all be dispatched? And... This this is what I call a exercise in fun fantasy baseball. Here is what we came up with. The starting pitcher for the Stringfield Nuclear Power Plant, Clayton Kershaw. 
the starting catcher, Buster Posey. At first base, Joey Votto. Second base, noted cheater, Jose Altuve. <laughs> starting at third, Adrian the Baldy Beltre. Shortstop is Javi Baez. And then in the outfield, from left to right, Mookie Betts, Mike Trout, Aaron Judge. And, since we live in the 21st century, a designated hitter, Jose Abreu. I'm a fan of this lineup, and I have some ideas on how they all get dispatched. Well, let's begin. Well, I think it's obvious from the beginning that Jose Altuve, after being, you know, like having his lunch money stolen by the schoolyard bullies, gets pushed into a trash can and rolled down the hill a la Milhouse on his mystical journey. Yes, of course. Makes sense. Uh, I think Clayton Kershaw gets addicted to eating a Krusty Burger and then uh, is test positive for HGH because that's what they use in those cows at Krusty Burger. What do you mean? I use the non-diseased parts from diseased animals. Joey Votto? I think he and Barney pick up where uh, Wade Boggs left off debating the greatest Canadian prime minister. Wilfred Laurier. Louis Saint Laurent. Boom. (laughs) Because Joey Votto, like, he has a sense of humor, but he's also, you know, a bit of a hothead, so I could see him definitely doing that. Mike Trout, uh, of course, hijacks the weather, uh, of course, hijacks the weather helicopter to fulfill his lifelong dream of becoming a meteorologist. And Arnie Pye does not take kindly to that, and hilarity ensues. Of course. Buster Posey. Buster Posey. I feel like Buster Posey ends up, you know, becoming employed at the Quickie Mart. And in Apu's final farewell, you know, Apu trains him to take over the Quickie Mart. But Buster Posey doesn't realize this. Apu, you know, flees, saying, you're on your own. And suddenly Buster Posey can't leave because it's a 24-hour job. Yep, pretty much. Uh, Jose Abreu is deported thanks to Proposition 27. Proposition 27, for those who don't remember, is the Springfield uh, ordinance that deported all immigrants. And that's a nice double double dip on Apu there. Um, I feel like Mookie Betts... um, Let's see what happens with Mookie Betts. Mookie Betts ends up... No, Mookie Betts has to stay so that Homer can't play again. Oh, then it's Aaron Judge who is arrested for all the other unsolved crimes in New York. Well, who else committed all the crimes while Steve Sachs was in jail? Uh, Is it possible we got the wrong guy, too? I don't know, Chief. Uh, Javi Baez, of course. See, that leaves us with Adrian Beltre. Oh, we've got Javi Baez and Adrian Beltre. Which one do you want to do first? I say we go with Javi Baez. <laughs> Javi Baez gets stuck in a never-ending argument about comic books with Comic Book Guy. Yep, and he won't leave the store until he proves that the Hulk could defeat the Thing in a game of chess. Absolutely. Of course the Hulk could defeat the Thing in a game of chess. The Hulk has Banner on his side. 
Yeah, but the thing is smarter than people give him credit for. He played Brooklyn Street Chess. Well, is it standard chess or Brooklyn Street Chess? That's what we have to decide. We're this playing three-dimensional chess. No, 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 you have to listen. We are playing three-dimensional chess. <laughs> ah. Okay. And that leaves, of course, Adrian Beltre. Now, Adrian Beltre, I think this is an interesting scenario here where out of nowhere, you know, he gets a phone call and suddenly Elvis Andrews shows up, taps him on top of the head, Beltre goes into a rage, chases after him, trips, falls down the mystery spot, and ends up stuck with Ozzie Smith. Yeah, that that tracks. That tracks. And then that leaves... The only reason we included Beltre, who's now since retired, is to have another uh, touching of the head joke. And that, of course, leaves Mookie Betts to continue playing So Homer Can't. <laughs> and once again, as a right-handed batter... Mookie Betts will be lifted so Homer can get his shot. And that is what it would look like. Now, of course, we're left with the question, which team would win? 2019 or or 1992? Our original team that was put together by the Simpsons writers or our team put together by us? I feel like... As great as we are, I got to give it to the 92 team. I think they have that chemistry factor that we haven't accounted for. I think having Altuve in that locker room, even though he ends up you know, getting pushed into a garbage can by Jimbo Dolphin Kearney, I feel like that's still a clubhouse, you know, just a clubhouse pariah. And then again, I would take Mookie over Daryl Strawberry. Especially at that point in Strawberry's career. Fair enough. Now, according to Wins Above Replacement, our oh God. team, our team is ten and a, oh sorry ten point six wins better than the ninety two team. But you're not thinking about Wonderbat, which nope. of course Roger Clemens incinerated. Roger Clemens did incinerate Wonderbat, but Homer could have built a new Wonderbat. Now. To, of course, properly settle this, I simulated a game between these two teams. How? Baseball mogul. Oh, right. Yeah. I, I guess that makes sense. I, I thought you, you know, went into your Professor Farnsworth box and made an army of cloned mutant supermen. Yes. Of course that's what I didn't do. Anywho... <laughs> With a few uh, cheating ways, uh, all of the pitchers were clones of the starting pitcher, uh, and all of the bench players were clones of several of the infielders and outfielders. Our team wins in a single game by a score of 9-7. to seven. That's a good softball score right there, too. That is a good softball score. There. I was surprised by how bad the pitching was. <laughs> but you I, see, and that's incredible that you did that simulation. How did did you factor in the Homer variable? Ah, see, that's the problem. I did not have Homer on either team. That is the one thing I did not factor in. And I mean, that's why the only solution is to bring back all of those players, get them on a diamond, tell Dan Castellaneta to suit up and get them out there. 
Excellent. Uh, <laughs> no, that's amazing. I mean, like, people talk all the time about, you know, like, how would this player fare in this era? We literally have two teams of different era superstars, and we've shown that once and for all, the future is better than the past. There that's you- that's Conclusion, right? That is New our conclusion. The Simpsons are better than old episodes. The old episodes are that, still definitely better. That's what you're saying. I'm saying yeah. that this specific new episode would definitely be superior. So we just need to go over to Matt Groening's house and convince him of this. Yes. Convince. <laughs> God, I don't like that menacing fist slap. Oh, I'm sorry. That was just my, you know, happy fist. <laughs> yes, good. <laughs> uh, so does that bring us to the part of the show where we discuss Futurama picks for the week? I believe it is now time for our Futurama picks of the week. Uh, yes, so obviously we just spent 20 minutes talking about The Simpsons. That means it's time to talk about Futurama. Uh, Yay! We're ready for Zoidberg! Now it is Zoidberg's turn! You seemed to be very excited last week about your pick for this week, so go ahead. All right, the episode I am going with this week for my Futurama pick of the week is War is the H Word. (laughs) That is a brilliant episode where Fry and Bender join the army to get a discount at the corner store and end up in a war against the ball aliens. And then, of course, Leela, you know, fighting against Sap Brannigan's uh, sexist military policies, enlists as Lee Lemon, the greatest man with skin that's silky smooth. Oh, such a great episode. Uh, I will go with another personal favorite, how Hermes requisitioned his groove back. Uh, you are technically correct. The best kind of correct. Yes, where that line comes from. Uh, also, a beautiful musical number in it, uh, where the writers show off some of their terrific musical talent. When I was through, there was a hurricane in Kingston Town. I am not going to sing that. I cannot sing. Uh, no, that's it's okay. It's, it's a fantastic episode, and you know, it's one of the great examples of a fry romantic interest, just a one-off of uh, uh, Agent Proctor, who is, you know, obsessed with Fry's messiness and the hilarity that ensues from there. And of course, when she steals Bender's soul, as it were, and all he can say is, "I'm Bender, please insert Girder." And then at the Bender, end, when he comes back to life, Girder. I am Bender, baby. Please insert liquor. so good and then just one last thing about war is the h word i loved all the mash references in it you know attention everyone evacuate the base and not just because it's meatloaf night they they played the mash theme at one point in it they had the hawkeye bot that was oh it was terrific oh and then of course the shower scene where you know they're scrubbing uh, where nixon's being scrubbed by zap radigan then Zap is scrubbed by Kiff in the famous lower, 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 too low, lower. <laughs> and then Fry, of course, scrubbing Kiff while singing I'm Walking on Sunshine, which, 
you know, Blader becomes canon as his favorite song. Um, Henry Kissinger, you know, is, you know, like for the episode, he's a great character in real life, possibly a war criminal. But in the episode where he says, well done, Fry, you have saved the world and you have breath as fresh as a summer ham. It brings it all together from the discount gum at the beginning. Oh, it it is a terrific episode. Uh, there are that, that's the great thing about Futurama. It is all pretty much terrific episodes because unlike The Simpsons, it didn't last long enough to get mediocre. The flame that burns twice as bright burns half as long. In the words of Scruffy. Yeah. Scruffy's on his break. <laughs> Scruffy going by the way he lived. <laughs> so, I think on that note, that brings us to the end of our uh, nonsensical ramblings, unless you have anything else, Ben. I think that's just about it for me. I mean, we, we hit the serious notes, we hit the fun notes, we hit the Zoidberg. Whoop, 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 whoop. Uh, yes, so... For those so, of you at home who can't see us, we're just doing the claw motions. Yes, imagine claws. Claws everywhere. From us at This Week in Blurred's Ball, I'm Jacob Morris. I'm Benjamin Bloom. Thank you so much for listening. Farewell from the world of tomorrow.